Hi, this is Reverend Tommy, and I'd like to welcome you back to the garden where we explore the big questions about life. I invite you to open your minds and be receptive to seeing things differently. So let's get metaphysical. Make sure I got these sorted right first. (laughs) Well, once again, um, welcome to Unity and Happy Father's Day to everybody. And last time I spoke, I started a new series on the Unity's five principles for three reasons. And the first was because I need to teach the class as part of my practicum for my licensed Unity teaching uh, certification. And the second is because I thought it'd be a good time to for all of us to review the principles. And the third is because I had never read this particular book. And I said, well, it'd be a good time to read it. And so for all these wonderful reasons, I decided to do a series on the five principles. In her book about the five principles, Reverend Ellen Devonport says, as well as offering tools for daily living, the five principles suggest answers to the great questions of existence that humans have been asking since the dawn of conscious awareness. Really? Sounds good. This is my kind of stuff right here. So what kind of of questions are we talking about? Well, the five principles addresses three fundamental questions. What is God? And notice I didn't say who. I said, what is God? Who are we? And how do things work? Now, are the answers being offered absolutely correct? Well, absolutely is a big, big word, and I'm not sure that I'd use it. Pretty sure I probably wouldn't. So one of the things that I like about unity is that we don't presume to have all the answers. Because in case you have not paid attention lately to new science and cosmology, we live in a pretty big place, this universe. And it seems that the more we learn, the bigger it gets. Because now they're talking parallel universes, possibly infinite amount of them. And so to presume that we have the the answers to things, for me, sounds just that, presumptuous. But I do like them because they seem to be a little more sensible than what we've been offered in the past by tradition. And for me, that's a step in the right direction. So until I find a better model, I will continue to work with this one. The reason I think that they are more sensible than previous answers offered is because they are a little more in line with the other way that we have of gathering information about the nature of things, and that is, of course, science. For one thing, we don't engage in in this creationism versus evolution debate, or at least I don't. Personally, I see no conflict whatsoever in the idea that the universe started with a big bang and or evolution. For me, it's not either or. One does not negate the other. I guess what I'm asking is that in your model of the universe, is it necessary, absolutely required, that people, man, appeared on this planet full grown? Because I know in the story of Adam and Eve, they appeared full grown. Now, we have ancient alien theorists who would tell you also that 
Yeah, we did arrive here full grown, but from another planet. Oh, I get it, so that's cool. <laughs> the third, think about it though. You and I both started in a fashion very similar to the Big Bang. When those two little cells came together, there was an explosion and an expansion. And you went from two to 50 trillion or so in about nine months. And just like the universe, we too have gone through stages of development. So I don't think it's odd at all that the universe would have been created in the same way that we were, if you will. Maybe it's just the way things work in this 3D world and it has nothing to do or it's not a distraction with the bigger overall picture of things. However, there is one thing that this evolution business that I, I, have, to, I have to stop at, at some point and that is that I don't believe that evolution created my consciousness. I don't believe consciousness is created from matter. I think it's the other way around. I think consciousness created matter. But that gets us into transcendental concepts, the absolute abstract realm, which we cannot deny because we have things like light, which light is above space and time, has no mass. So there are ideas out there. The transcendental world does seem to exist. From what we've been reading at our Let's Get Metaphysical class lately, it seems that consciousness itself like light, is fundamental to the universe. That is the proposition. And this is book that we're about to start this week is called The Self-Aware Universe, How Consciousness Creates the Material World. This guy is a theoretical physicist, I believe at the University of Oregon or one of those places. From that perspective then, what we have called God all along is just pure, simple, conscious, well, not simple, but consciousness. Maybe it is simple. It is that life-giving, intelligent energy that is everywhere and in everything. For unity, principle one, God is not a being, not supreme or otherwise. It is this stuff, this consciousness, that everything is made of. And we are all expressions of this one stuff. It explains why ants know what they're doing. They know what they're doing because they too have consciousness. Now, it might not be to the degree that we do, but then again, how do I know that? And the answer is, I don't. I don't know what they're thinking, but they're thinking something. This stuff is everywhere. This is the grand paradox of all things, of this one thing, this God consciousness, whatever you want to call it, in infinite variation, in infinite form. The no thing that is everything, as I heard one time. I thought that was interesting. The formless in form, or as Aristotle said, the unmoved mover. Last time I talked about principle one, God is absolute good and everywhere present. Today, I'm going to talk about principle two. And it's similar to that. It says human beings have a spark of divinity within them, the Christ within. In principle one, 
we have God as an impersonal life force. And last time I read you from Matthew that says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and, and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So in that sense, it's impersonal. It, it doesn't distinguish one from the other. But in, unit, in principle two, now we have God as personal. Emmanuel, God within. I do not want to note, though, that when unity uses the word Christ within, that is an arbitrary term. Because the unity co-founders grew up in the Christian environment. They used Christian terminology. But we could rephrase that today and say it's that consciousness within, that eternal transcendent energy within. Essentially, it is saying that we are like God. Principle two is saying that we are like God, that we are made of the same stuff, the same stuff that God is made of. God is our DNA. Now, that's an interesting idea. But owning it and living up to it, well, that's sometimes quite another matter. And that's our challenge sometimes. Now, traditionalists would be thinking, and let me get into my Southern Baptist, how dare he make such a blasphemous statement? Upon what authority does he make such an audacious claim? Well, the audacious claim is based on the authority of Genesis 1. And how does that go again? Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created male and female, he created them. Now let me be real clear about something here. If you believe in the Bible, then this is the starting point, okay? This is ground zero, this is the cornerstone of the theology. This is where we start. We are created in the image and likeness of God. This is principle, as I said before. It is two plus two equals four anytime, anywhere. Zero variation. God is above time and space. And what it says is Genesis 1 is that there is a part of us, our essence, that is above time and space as well. That's what it says to me. So anytime that we get off with our off track with our belief system, we need to ask ourselves, are we consistent with this cornerstone, with this idea that this is our true essence? If it's not, then somehow, somewhere along the way, we have gotten off track, and it's plain and simple. And I think that's what traditional Christianity, without being critical, has done. They've gotten off track. Now, what am I talking about? Well, somehow we went from in the beginning being created in the image and likeness of God to somehow being born in sin, defective. And the reason we're told is because of what two people did long ago. According to this theory, then, you are in prison because of a crime that somebody else committed. And this is under the jurisdiction 
of a just God. I have trouble trying to sort this stuff out. I really do. The catch here, and I'm going to go back to what I keep saying, is that if the Bible is literal, then it is about two people who did something long ago. But if it's allegory, symbolism, as we teach, then it's about something that we each did, that we each decided on to do. And that would be to come into material form. Now, FYI here, let me cue you in on something. If you study just a little bit about the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, from an unbiased perspective, you will learn that this story was never intended to be, that is the story of Adam and Eve, never intended to be taken literally. Never. This is not how they interpreted things. And that in fact, Adam is not even a proper name in that society. It is more of a, not a reference to a man, but to mankind in general. So it's trying to describe how it is that we got into this situation. And so, as you know, we in unity, we don't believe in original sin. We believe in original virtue because we go back to ground zero again, to that cornerstone. Now, in theory, original virtue sounds really awesome. But we look around this world and we see a lot of evidence that we are anything but virtuous. We see this all the time. So what gives? What's going on? Well, this brings me to the million-dollar question, and that is, why is there evil in the world? This has been troubling philosophers and theologians from the beginning of time, especially given principle one, that God is absolute good and everywhere present. Where is there room for evil? If that's the case. Now, this is tricky stuff, but the best I can make out, it would seem, has to do with the dualistic nature of this world, of this realm, and free will, the combination of those two things. See, free will implies that we have choices. But in order to have choices, there must be more than one thing to choose from. In the early Genesis story, we are told that everything was complete and everything was good. In other words, it is the depiction of the absolute state of being, where there is nothing but good, the absolute realm above time and space. That is principle one. But then Adam and Eve, or as we would say, we, decided we wanted to partake of the fruit of good and evil which now again we can rephrase that we wanted to partake in the world of duality, of choices. And with choices comes the possibility of bad judgment, of error judgment, as we say, in unity, especially when a soul is, I'm going to say quote unquote here, immature in this particular game, in this unfolding process. Now, let me return to the example of us as humans going through stages to give you an example of something similar to this. Let's say you have a seven-year-old child or an eight-year-old child. 
Now, is this child necessarily a bad person? No, no, not at all. But they do have free will, and they are immature. And sometimes they don't make the best of choices. For example, give them the keys to the car and let them see what they do with it, assuming they could reach the controls and everything. How long do you think it would take them before they wrecked it? Not long. Well, in essence, this was what's happening to us. This is exactly what happened to us in that stage of development. We make bad choices. But does that mean that the realm of choices is by default a bad place? Does there have to be bad choices? Can we come into the world of expression and have a beautiful, peaceful, loving existence? I think we can. And I think this is where the idea of heaven on earth comes from, that we can do this. Remember my, my old example? Baskin and Robbins, 31 flavors, all good? You can have it. You can have it both ways. Now, as we develop further, the eight-year-old becomes an 18-year-old, then he starts getting better at making choices with that automobile, for example. Well, depending on which 18-year-old is. Some are still not very good at it. <laughs> not very good at all. But you get the idea that as we begin to unfold we start to realize and make better choices. And as we come, become more conscious of our spiritual unfolding, we make better choices. And maybe we can get over things easier. Maybe we can forgive a little bit easier. Things like that. And why is that? Because this, this is all an appearance. Michael talked about that last time. This is, this is the crux of what principle one is trying to to tell you when it says that God is absolute good and everywhere present. What it is trying to tell you is that there is not an opposing force at work in this universe. And I don't know if you realize this, but that is a Zoroastrianism idea. It was in existence long before Jesus came around, long before, that there is a, another force and there's a battle going on. And we picked it up. The Christian model picked it up. But principle wants to tell us, no, there is not another force. Then how do you explain this? That there is a, and we say it is an appearance. It is an appearance only. And this is sometimes hard to understand when you're first new at it. St. Augustine, one of the church fathers, struggled with this. He, I mean, he sat down and he addressed a lot of questions. And he struggled with this one. And he came up with the idea that evil was like a hole in a shirt. He said it looks like a thing, but it really isn't. What it is is a lack of a thing. It's a lack of fabric in, in, in that case. So we go back to our bedrock understanding of we are image in the likeness of God, that we are the essence, and that we come here because this is the place where we can touch, taste, smell, see, hear, that which we think, and, that, and thereby that which we create. Reverend Devonport in the book refers to the first two chapters as principle one, she says, God is all. And in principle two, she says, you are God. The real challenge here is to rid ourselves of the idea of God being a being with properties, grandiose as the properties are, and look at it more 
as a force, a life energy. Try this, for example. Try changing your view of God from omnipotent to omnipotence. From omnipresent to omnipresence. From all-powerful to all-power. It changes things. If you see God in this manner and apply principle two, that we are like that, created in the image and likeness thereof, then you can see that we are God in form. So summarizing the first two principles, we can refer to a word that I have used before, and I hope you've learned it. If you're not, maybe you'll learn it this time. The word is panentheism, not pantheism, panentheism. It means God is both out there as principle and in here as personal. And there is reference to this in the Bible. There really is, although normally we're not aware of this. And the first one, of course, was what I quoted from Matthew, where he just, God gives to all. I don't care who you are, evil, bad, whatever, God gives to all. And then the other one, and that's the, the impersonal principle part of things. And the other one is when Jesus referred to father. He said, Abba. And Abba is a word like daddy, like papi. He said, it is that personal thing that's inside of you. So in summary, I want to use an analogy that I read from one of the unity ministers about to try to get you a better idea in your mind how you sort out something that is both impersonal and personal. He says, imagine, and I'm paraphrasing him, that there is, that God is like water running through in a river. God is this river. And on that river, you have a mill. And you use that water, this force, to produce what he calls paper pulp. One day you decide that you no longer want to produce paper pulp, that you want to produce flour. Well, see, the river is indifferent to what you're using this power for. That choice is yours. So it's not concerned with this. It is impersonal. It is a force that's giving you power, and electricity would be the same way. Electricity doesn't care what you use it for. It is a power. It is a principle. So whether you use this power to produce paper pulp or flour, that is your choice. And when you make that choice using this power, then it becomes personal through you. This infinite energy becomes personal as you. You are the light of the world, it says in the Bible. And from that sense, in that sense, and principle two says, you are God. Amen.